Hi, I'm Victor Casale, CEO of Mob Beauty, and to me, it's a matter of passion. Indie Beauty is a breeding ground for generations of innovators who color outside the lines. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. While often considered a trend that has gained momentum in the rise of social media, these brands have always been around. They're an integral part of the beauty business cycle. For example, MAC Cosmetics launched in 1984 with a new perspective on beauty, growing from an indie into an iconic global brand. Victor Casale was at ground zero for Mac's inception as a chief chemist and has never stopped innovating or launching brands, raising the bar just a little higher each time with each business he launches. Mob Beauty, Pure Culture Beauty, and Pact Collective have all made beauty better. So, Victor, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to chat with you. And there's so many things to talk about because I think we sort of share having, let's call them unconventional careers <laughs> and doing lots of things at one time. But let's start at the beginning, the very beginning. So you started your career in beauty at one of the most iconic brands, MAC Cosmetics, at its inception in 1984. Can you take us back to the founding of MAC and the impact it had on the industry at the time? Like MAC has always remained relevant. It's hard to really contemplate that it is, I guess, considered a heritage brand at this point. But like, what was the industry like back then? And what was Mac like sort of in those sort of early days? Well, I just want to thank you for having me here on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. This takes me back, I want to say, 37 years. I was 20 years old, Kelly, and I was dating my future wife. We met in high school and I was taking chemistry at the University of Toronto. Not sure why, but I was good at it. And I took it because I felt comfortable with chemistry. And, you know, just having dinner at my girlfriend's house, her older brother said, you know, I'm a makeup artist and I'm looking at starting a cosmetic company and I kind of got a few things going, but I can't really get what I want. Do you know how to make lipstick? And I said, no, <laughs> but, I <wanted> to, <laughs> but I wanted to impress everybody. So I literally had set up a small space that I had access to a small room and I bought some used equipment from a lab equipment supply house down, you know, in our town and reverse engineered and brought in samples and experimented and experimented and fell asleep at my desk at night and on weekends and school by day and trying to figure out how to make product by night. And after a period of time, I started to really understand the physical chemistry and that was actually my specialty. And I started to make some really cool things and, you know, challenged by my brother-in-law, Frank Toskin, to really push the limit on what he was looking for. You know, those are the products we started with back in 1984, the matte lipstick. Back then, I don't think there was a matte lipstick. I think the only way you get matte was maybe on a pencil, but then the pencils had pearl in it. So the idea at the beginning of MAC was really to push the status quo on formulation. It started on formulation and really deliver performance product that was different and, you know, had more coverage and more texture to it than what you could typically find. The only place you could actually get product with color was at a makeup supply studio or warehouse. And, and even then they were just primary colors. They weren't colored, finished color. So that's where we started. But it didn't end there. The two founders, Frank Toskin and Frank Angelo, you know, were just people who 
challenged everything, but not in a negative way, in a constructive way. It was always about, well, why do we have to do it that way? Why can't we try this? Why can't we move in this direction? Why do we have to pay our staff commission? Why do we have to wear a white lab coat at the Bay or Bloomingdale's or whatever? That Because that's what you had to do back then. So we kind of pushed along the way and it was hard. You know, I talk about commitment at the beginning. We were committed. You had to stay focused and you had to stay committed. And you were up against obstacles all the time. And everybody that we knew said, we're crazy. Everybody. You know, we're a young group of people out of Toronto that came together to do something. And, you know, we weren't from the industry. And maybe that helped us. But what was special about it was that we were very comfortable with who we were. And we allowed everybody to be comfortable with who they were. And I think that fostered a culture of challenge and creativity and I believe the culture is still there. Now, I do talk to some people that I've worked with over the years. You know, it has changed. The culture has changed. But I was told by one person, very senior, and said that, you know, Estee Lauder purchased a lot of companies, but Mac is the only company with a soul. And I thought, wow, I think that's what the difference was. The difference was that the organization itself behaved like a creative entity and really challenged itself. And so I think that was a, you know, a special ingredient, let's say in the formula of max success. And just to add some context, the industry was a very structured place back then. There were rules of how you did things, where you sold. There were playbooks for everything. So Mac was such sort of this breath of fresh air, kind of challenging things. I find it really amazing that at a Mac counter, anywhere in the world, you can find the most creative makeup artists kind of in that city. And it kind of creates a home for people who kind of like beat their own drummer or whatever that saying is. Like there is a home at Mac and it still feels that way when you go to a counter for everybody. Yeah, it does. And just to be quick about this story, because I think it was an important story that is a good lesson for me anyway, and for maybe the, the listeners we were two or three years into rolling out with Nordstrom. Now, you can just imagine the Mac culture and our Mac team in Nordstrom's. Now, today, it's not as unique, let's say, but back then, it was very, very much pushing the envelope. Everyone else in the Nordstrom cosmetic area is wearing suits or lab coats. We opened one in Atlanta, and we got a call from the manager from Nordstrom's Atlanta that said, you have an employee that is a man dressed as a woman. They have to leave the store. And we said, no, they don't. They said, no, they have to leave the store. They absolutely have to leave the store. They cannot work in this store. It's against our policy. And we said, okay, well, then we're going to close the store. And this was a million-dollar counter. Kudos to Frank Angelo and Frank Toskin for making that call. But that call supported the value and the culture of the Mac you see today. That was just one of many examples. To actually put financial gain over who you were and allowing people to freely express who they were back in 1989-1990 was unprecedented. And the Mac organization felt that and said, wow, they've got our back. This is a real family. We can be who we are. We don't have to be afraid to go to work. We don't have to put on a mask, you know, a face, pardon the pun, when we leave the home to go to work. We can be who we are. And that's what we celebrated, and that's what we enforced, and that's what we rewarded, and that's what we stood up for and fought for. And that was a perfect example of why that Mac was able to achieve, you know, the longevity it has today, where the example I said that, you know, Mac has a soul. I think that was one of the examples of why it evolved. Yeah. And kudos to Estee Lauder for allowing that soul to sort of live and thrive. 
you know, because very often kind of post acquisitions and post founder involvement brands and kind of the the DNA of what made them special sometimes gets diluted. But Mac is still sort of as strong as ever, I think. Yes. You know, speaking to Leonard Lauder and Frank Lanhammer, who was a COO or CEO at the time, maybe the COO, they were shocked and dismayed at the ability of the brand to create the sales and the, the loyalty from a customer without advertising. When they looked at our P&L sheet, there was an advertising line, marketing advertising line, and there was nothing on it. And they said, well, where's your marketing advertising? But you said, well, we have it in training and we have industry preferred discount card where we give a discount to professionals. I said, we don't just spend on marketing. We invest in the organization. We invest in education. We invest in makeup artists, invest in our people. And they didn't understand it. And maybe to that, they left it alone because they just didn't know what to do. And so they, they kind of let us be. And maybe they still have. I don't know. Well, you know, you've built a career being on the forefront of sort of challenging the status quo of the beauty industry, first as an outsider, and now you are firmly an insider. But, you know, you also founded Cover FX in 2020, pioneering the vegan clean movement. And most recently, you have launched two brands and a nonprofit. So, you know, what is it that keeps you inspired to continue raising the bar in the brand you create, but also kind of in the industry at large, because you know the recipe of success. So I have to believe that you could probably take an easier path to building brands than the one that you've chosen, which is constantly sort of pushing the envelope and raising the bar for everyone in the process. Well, my commitment is to succeed when you have opportunity and challenges ahead. And I look at the beauty industry, the global beauty industry, as giving me an opportunity when I was, you know, 15 years at Mac or 16 years at Mac from 20 to 35. It supported me. It gave me a career. It supported my family. And we had many, many, many challenges and obstacles. And to walk away from that after, let's call it a success with Mac, to me, that was not thinkable. I want to continue with this industry. I love this industry. I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. I tell my friends, I get excited to get up and go in and work with the teams, work in the labs. I get excited to go home too, but I'm always excited and I see challenges and opportunity. And for me, just executing on anything or something or a project without challenging yourself or challenging the way it's done is not as exciting. For me. And that's not what I'm committed to. I'm committed to helping to reshape the future of what I get involved in and therefore really take on projects seriously and really look to move things forward. And these projects now, you know, Pure Culture and Mob give me an opportunity at a time in my life where I have many connections, lots of experience, resources, and the ability to work with anybody up and down the supply chain and try to make change, positive change, well, at least in my eyes. But, you know, most founders struggle with keeping all the balls in the air with just one business, let alone three startups. And, we, you know, Pack Collective is a startup in its own right, albeit not a brand. How do you manage it all? What I've learned is to stay close and work with amazing people. And when you do that, your obstacles become easier to overcome. And with all of the projects I'm involved with, I have amazing partners. At PAC, I'm working with Mia Davis. I'm working with Carly Snyder. She's amazing. We have a great team there. 
We each know our role and we get things done and we're committed. At Pure Culture, I have an incredible friend, colleague, and business partner, Joy Chen, who is a seasoned, experienced beauty businesswoman. And we each do our role. We're each committed and things happen there. At Mob Beauty, I have Alicia Gallagher. I call her the rock star retail marketing person of the industry. And we are committed. And by surrounding myself with amazing people, it's endless in what is possible. Starting your career in an organization like Mac, these three projects pale to what it was like 10 years in when we were expanding into markets globally and you know, just trying to keep up with 150% growth per year, year over year over year over year. And in those days, we did everything ourselves. You know, I bought the machines. I set them up. We trained people how to run a powder press. Uh, we molded our own lipsticks. We grew internally ourselves. You learn to work with great people and to support them. And you'll learn to not micromanage because <laughs> you can't really move forward when you micromanage. I would love to dig into each of these businesses a little bit more because I think what you're creating with each of them is quite different. So I think there's a lot of learnings for everyone. But so let's start with Mob Beauty. So I think circularity and concept should create the most significant impact from a sustainability standpoint. But it requires a shift in behavior from price perception and use, and more importantly, brand loyalty. So, you know, Mob is, I'll let you explain sort of the concept because I'm sure you'll do it far better than I can. It's a beautiful brand and a really thoughtful brand. And I do believe that refills kind of are the future and circularity is the future, but it's challenging and it also kind of requires buy-in along the way with retailers. And consumers, and I wonder if we're there yet. So I'd love for you to share kind of the impetus for starting that business and any early learnings, because I think there are a lot of people also trying to tackle the concept of refills as well. Yes, thank you. Mob Beauty is a company that we've started to really do beauty better. That's what we say. And that's a vague term, but specifically, it's to challenge each aspect of what we believe we can have positive change within our industry. A lot of things that we do at Mob have been happening in the past, but we're trying to really consolidate it into one brand that really speaks to positive, sustainable change for the industry, be it the way products are formulated, the way products are packaged, the way they're sold, the way innovation is done. We are very much not behind closed doors formulating and developing product. We're out in front of our community with our community developing product. So there's very many aspects to Mob that we believe are unique and we believe support our mission of doing beauty better, we can talk to specifically to refills. That's just one aspect of our mission. I've been working on refills for a long time. You know, back in the Mac days, we had pro pallets and we used those for the professionals so they didn't have to buy packaging. I mean, we used magnets at the time, which aren't the best solution, but we did that because we wanted to reduce packaging. We know I have recycling in my DNA. Our organization started a recycling program called Back to Mac 35 years ago before there was even recycling, curbside recycling in most municipalities in North America. So it's who we are. It's what we believe. So Alicia and I realized that one of the biggest ways to change your waste is just to reuse things that you can possibly use. For me, a perfect example is my razor blade and my razor handle. I have not changed my razor handle in, I don't know when I got that, 15, 20 years? I don't know. I use it. It works perfectly. I don't need a new razor handle every time I shave. 
I buy the razor blades. And that's what I do. And so it's as simple as that. Our industry, in pursuit of innovation, of growing the industry, really likes to change things a lot and puts a lot of effort into making things seem precious. And you do that with packaging a lot. You know, you make the, the package heavy, you make it shiny, you make it mixed materials, and you sell the dream of, okay, this is not just a lipstick or an eyeshadow. It's a beautiful package, and it's very luxurious, and no one else has it, and you spent a lot of money on it. That's how we've been marketing to and been marketing and everyone perceives packaging sometimes as the quality driver of a product, not necessarily the product itself. That's based on how we marketed and educated our consumer, ourselves. We want to change it at Mob. What we're trying to say at Mob is, look, you can have an amazing product delivered to you. But if you can do that with the least amount of an environmental negative impact, then to me, that should be the future of luxury. That's what luxury should be. The least you can waste and the more you can recycle and reuse, then that is luxury. That's going to take education. It's going to take training. And it's going to take being open with who we're trying to sell the product to. There's a lot of misunderstanding about packaging, but that's just one aspect. On refills, not everybody's going to refill, but you get one person to refill once. That's already one win you have right there. And many people in my world do stay with the product for a long time. You have a mascara you like, you go through eight or 10 of those a year and you use it for five years. You know, well, you refill that 15 times a year for five years. That's a lot of waste you've avoided. Just that one person. So a consumer may never change to all refills and commit themselves to a company. But if they do for a month, a year, 10 years, it's better than them throwing everything away all the time. We want to take this opportunity to share an organization that matters to us. The Independent Beauty Association, or IBA, is a nonprofit which helps small to mid-sized beauty businesses grow and succeed through education, assistance with international exports, connections to qualified service providers, and advocates for fair and reasonable regulations. Find out more at independentbeauty.org. The other brand, Pure Culture, is really tapping into what has become, I don't know that it's even a new trend. I think personalization is kind of in the DNA of everyone, right? Who doesn't want a product that's made just for them? But it's always been almost impossible to scale. But technology has made personalization scalable. And Pure Culture sort of taps into that opportunity both in, in the concept of personalization, but also in scale, because you launched in, what, 1,700 Target doors in January. Can you share a little bit about how you approach personalization with Pure Culture? And also, you know, from your experience, even though it's sort of early days, are consumers ready to engage with a customized kind of beauty concept in a mass environment? Because largely they've lived in sort of premium and luxury. Let's start with customization. You know, having the ability to reach a consumer with the technology on phone, on computer, and getting feedback instantaneously allows you to build a database and connect with each consumer. That was impossible before because before we went through retailers and retailers went through retail staff who turned frequently say, so you didn't have that connection. We have that connection. We also have the ability to get to that last mile. They call it the last mile, you know, deliver to each person's door on a regular basis for a reasonable value and expectation of shipping. That's happened globally. I'm sure most of the listeners here have a package coming to the door, if not once a day, 
a couple times a week, that has made it easier. The, the hurdle of getting a product directly to a consumer, the barriers come down significantly. And so what that allows us for me to do as a formulator in the early years before this ability to connect and listen to the customer directly, almost instantaneously, I was formulating product that I could get as many people to use as possible. That's what, how I was formulating. It was, okay, I need to make a moisturizer. I want to make this work for as many people as possible. But you know what? People are different. And with Pure Culture, we can actually make a moisturizer that's good for an oily skin that has acne. And that's different than a moisturizer for somebody who has, let's say, combination skin who lives in a dry environment for somebody who wants a moisturizer that is a little older and has chapped skin. Each one of those is specifically different and formulated differently. I couldn't do that before. Before I'd make a couple of moisturizers, you put them on the shelf, you ship them out, and you hope you're going to sell a lot of them. This way it works differently. We don't build inventory. There is no inventory built to sit on shelves in retail locations. We send out test kits. You purchase a test kit. We get your, your information. We get a couple of chemistry points on your skin, and we get some of your subjective information. And with that, we can actually hone in and deliver a product to you that's specific to you. Are the masses ready for it? I believe they are because Target saw the opportunity. They took us, we just were working out our kinks online. The pandemic just opened up and we launched. It was because we're offering personalization in mass at a reasonable value. And we can do that today. It takes commitment. It's not easy. It takes a commitment to develop a technology platform that can do that, to develop a formulating method that can scale. We micro batch everything. Everything's done in tiny, tiny batches, but we can do it at scale. And so we've built the organization to grow and to be customized. And I think it will take a little bit of time because purchasing a product, again, like in color, has become a lot about the package and touching it and feeling it and smelling it. And we can't replace that necessarily in our model. But I believe that a lot of people are seeing that the trial and error method is not as successful as the direct method and actually giving the brand specific information, getting them specific chemistry information from our test kits to them and getting a product that's actually made for them. I think personalization, sort of the, the ability to scale it is such a huge unlock. And, you know, personalization, I think, means different things to different people. You know, at Lalavo, it's just your name on a fragrance, but it somehow makes it special all the way down to sort of what you're doing, which is very customized in and specific to someone's skin chemistry. So as a formulator, that must open up so many creative doors. It's so exciting, Kelly. It's, amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing. But no one can see this, but you just got this. Huge smile I know on it, your face. it's why is it exciting? Because when I sit down and I'm challenged with a specific set of issues that I need to work with, I can be laser focused. I don't have to worry about selling this to a hundred people or five hundred people. I have to make sure that this one person or this one group of people that have this issue or these combination of issues get their solution resolved. And that frees me up to take a lot of things out that I don't need to and put more of what I need to. So you actually get more value in that solution because I'm putting less of a little bit of everything just to make it good for everybody. And you know, the idea came from my partner, Melinda. She works for Johnson & Johnson Innovation. And she kept telling me, you know, like she runs 10 of their innovation. Labs. She goes, personalized you know, medicine is coming. You know, they're making diabetic medication for certain types of people that's different than other types of people because they can make it work better. 
And that's where the idea came from. It was like, wow, we could do this for skincare as well. We have the ability, we have the communication, we have the capability. I'm a formulator and I'm also a manufacturer. I know how to do this stuff. And that's how we pulled it together. And we have Joy Chen, who is great at creating that customer experience. It's been really interesting to watch you build that business because I think a lot of these customized beauty businesses, there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors behind them because without being vertically integrated, I'm not really sure how customized some of these offerings are. But knowing people who have created these vertically integrated tech-powered solutions, it's exciting for consumers. It is. And yes, each of us are going to come at it a different way. There'll be technology entrepreneurs who are very savvy at the technology and can pull together an AI type system that gathers information and consolidates it and gives the customer less choices that are more specific to them. There's a guy like me who's kind of run the gambit of the supply chain where I look at the whole thing. And when this idea came, the execution was not just selling the customer on a marketing ploy. It was actually delivering on customized formulations. And you get your name on the bottle too, by the way. It's not just a formula. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to also dig into Pat Collective because you and Mia and the team there are tackling head on both the education around recycling for the industry and founders and consumers, and also tackling a really big problem in a grassroots way. What's been the reaction of the industry to date? I think you just hit a real benchmark. And also, I want to make sure that we tell people like how they can get involved. Just a quick history on Pack Collective. About three years ago, about a year before Mob even launched, Mob Beauty, Alicia and I were talking about how we were going to be as sustainable as possible. And of course, my background, having managed the operations of Back to Mac at the back end, I myself had literally taken mirrors off of compacts and separated things, and we organized sending products to recyclers to make pallets that we used in our warehouse. So I was very familiar with the operation, with the process, and, and why we needed to do it. We went out into industry and looked for what was available, and we were not happy because it was not transparent, and it was very expensive. And in my mind, I thought, well, you know what? I did this before. We can do it again and set out to set up a back-to-mob type program. Then I met Mia Davis, who is a dynamo. And we were kind of complaining about the same issues. <laughs> yes, Mia is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> totally. She's the heart and soul of what we do. Mia and I realized we wanted to do something for the industry, a non-competitive, non-for-profit that shared and supported sustainability efforts as members. And we piloted the program at Credo. We piloted an in-store collection program at Credo. They were already doing one with another provider, but we improved on it and made education a big part of it. Mob piloted a by mail program that was very much more direct and inexpensive and effective. And then we tested it out and then we launched it to the industry in July of, I want to say last year. And within a period of time, within you know maybe a year, it's actually been just over a year and we have 150 members and not just brands. The idea was to really get the whole supply chain involved. One part of the supply chain isn't going to solve the problem. So we have packaging suppliers as members. We have brands as members. We have product development independent members. We have non-for-profits as members. We have retailers as members. We even have media like yourself as members. And all of us are responsible in some form or another other on the success of our industry. And bringing everyone together and we share ideas, we share stories, we have 
lunch and learns. We give data out. We're very transparent about our recycling programs. We're really just trying to help everybody. And, you know, my feeling is that we shouldn't compete on sustainability as an industry. We should be sharing. And that way we have one message that goes out to the industry and to the consumer, as opposed to lots that are sometimes contradicting and confusing. And education is a big part of it because I believe that you have a better chance of changing someone's behavior or your own behavior if you're educated on it and you know more. And only then you are really empowered to make a change. Because if you're not, there's no motivation to make a change. So the idea is let's educate, let's be transparent, let's bring best practices together, let's share them. And that's what PAC Collective is all about. I find it really interesting that the underpinnings of both of your brands and also PAC Collective involve solving for complicated, operationally intense propositions, packaging, refills, personalization, recycling. I think many indie brand founders are very altruistic in their intentions when concepting their brands, but often focus on the branding and marketing, kind of the shiny, sexy parts of launching brands rather than the operational nuts and bolts of a business. When you concept a brand, where do you start? Because you're brilliant in the marketing and the packaging and the branding as well. But at the core of all of these concepts are really complicated operational organizations. Yes. And I believe it has to do with my personality, good or bad. But it also has to do with my upbringing. At Mac, I was kind of like the science guy in the family and the technical guy. So, you know, I formulated the product, but then also helped set up manufacturing and distribution and the whole kind of back-end operational part of the organization. My brother-in-law and his partner and my former wife were brilliant at marketing the brand and pushing it forward. And I basically learned how to get things done, no matter what the obstacle was, no matter what the challenge was to get it done. And I've been in that mode since then. And so when I look at an opportunity, I look at the operational opportunity and how I can overcome challenges. And it's hard. If there are entrepreneurs, indie brands, even operational people, it's hard to make change. It's expensive. It's slow. It's hard. And it's hard to make commitments sometimes and follow through on them. Absolutely. I'll use the word absolutely because it's hard to be absolute about anything, any commitment you make, because there's always going to be something that comes up. And that's really where I live. That's my sweet spot. And if you look at my relationships, I've got Alicia Gallagher, who is the marketing sales chief brand officer at Mob, who drives that connection with the customer. I have Joy Chen at Pure Culture Beauty, again, who's marketing and sales and business and drives the front end. And I've got Mia. We got Mia at Pact, who's just driving that. And I just love connecting all the dots and making it happen. I want to tap into your visionary outlook and and get your opinion on the current state of clean beauty, because you have been on the forefront of that conceptually, both in building brands and as a formulator. But this concept is, it's nebulous, but somehow it's become table stakes. But it's recently come under intense scrutiny because of fuzzy claims and lack of substantiation. And I think to a certain extent, as an industry, in our effort to solve the problem, we may have further complicated the problem because we have retailers who have set up standards that are all different. We have third-party certifications that don't all agree. How do we unravel this for the consumer 
And I guess, what does the future of clean beauty really look like? Well, that's an amazing question. I wish we had another hour, but let's see if I can condense it to five minutes or less. For me, seeing clean beauty come and develop and now become a mainstay is not new. It's not a new concept in our industry. Natural was kind of the the one that I kind of grew up with in the 80s and 90s, in the early 2000s. It was natural. It's natural. What's natural? Natural is nebulous. It is almost the same, not exactly, but natural is not one of those terms you can actually define specifically in beauty. And companies would kind of package their delivery of what natural meant to their consumer. And of course, a lot of them conflicted. So fast forward, and here we are, and now we have a word like clean. And clean is really, it's like natural in that there is no real term. It's its in the eye of the beholder. So clean means which each consumer believes clean means to them. And unfortunately, every brand is going to try to package the phrase clean and deliver to their, their consumer, the consumer they're going after, and it's going to be different than everyone else. So it's very personal. Clean is personal, just like natural is personal. I have lots of examples on how to kind of explain what that means. For example, one ingredient like silicone, which some brands would say is not clean, or some consumers would say is not clean, other consumers say are clean. So, you know, I think the consumers can decide what clean means. You know, I'm trying to get to the answer. I think the answer is the consumers can decide what clean is. We as an industry love packaging a concept and marketing it. Clean is just another one. You know, we had mineral. That wasn't innovation in scientific innovation in product. That was just communication innovation. They picked a word. They tried to define it. They explained that it was good for the industry. And then everybody jumped on the mineral bandwagon. And now we have clean. Now, clean is actually a good one because it is allowing us as an industry to take a few things out that we just put in nobody really cared about that we could do better. We use a lot of acrylic. We use a lot of vinyl. We use a lot of materials to help make formulations feel and look and and last longer. And that's in the short term, that may be good because it's a little cheaper and you can sell the product a little cheaper to the consumer. But long term, it may not necessarily be good to us as an industry as it relates to the sustainability of our supply chain and our environment and to the consumer and their health. Well, Victor, I could talk to you all afternoon long, but I'm getting the hook by the producers. <laughs> so we may have to do, we may have to continue our conversation either in another podcast or I don't know, maybe another format. You've been really gracious in participating in our webinars too, but thank you for all that you do and kind of raising the bar for all of us and also sharing your knowledge because I agree with you. I think some of these sustainability I think is the most important thing that we can't tackle individually. We all have to work together as an industry and through Pack Collective, you've provided, I guess, a way for us to do that in a structured way. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of that. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I'm always here and I love what you do, Kelly. Thank you, Victor. Hi, I'm Victor, and for me, it's a matter of commitment. It takes commitment to succeed in reshaping an industry. There are a lot of challenges that lay ahead, and if you're not committed, you won't succeed. For Victor, it's a matter of commitment. For most entrepreneurs, one startup at a time is more than enough to manage. But for Victor, finding the right co-founder and building a strong team has made him the ultimate beauty multitasker. 
Mac taught him to think outside the box and to not be influenced by mainstream players, providing the springboard for a prolific career in the beauty industry. With each new business he launches, he brings the industry along, sharing his knowledge, collaborating, and paying it forward. So in the end, it's a matter of commitment. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. If you like what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com or follow us on social media.